environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This, this is, is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I am Gemma Deer, and today we are unfortunately not joined by Brandon Galm. Um, Today's guest, who I will introduce to you shortly, uh, is living in Melbourne. I live in Germany, and Brandon lives in Kansas. And that means that the three time zones were just unmanageable for one or more of us not being up in the middle of the night. So sadly, Brandon is not with us today. But with us today is Alda Balthrop Lewis. Uh, She grew up on the Gulf of Mexico and her work on environmental literature has been shaped by her love for that place. She now lives, as I said, in Melbourne, Australia, in the watershed of the Birrarung or Yarra River. She works as a research fellow at Australian Catholic University's Institute for Religion and Critical Inquiry, and having gained degrees in religious studies from various US institutions, her work brings the critical strengths of that field to bear on environmental and religious literature. Her 2021 book, which will be the focus of today's episode, Thoreau's Religion, Walden Woods, Social Justice and the Politics of Asceticism, offers a new image of Walden Woods, bringing Thoreau into conversation with environmental justice movements. Hello, Alda, and welcome onto the show. Thank you so much for having me. Inspired uh, by our guest's work, as ever, today's root word is religion. Um, So we usually understand that today to mean faith in or worship of a god or gods and the lifestyle and practices that go along with such faith. So the re of religion is the re of repetition, but there is uncertainty as to the origin of the second part of the word. It either comes from the Latin ligare, meaning to bind, and religion therefore being a binding to God or a way of life, or it comes from the Latin legere, meaning to read, so that religions involve, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, a constant re-reading in the sense of a painstaking observance of rites. So perhaps it is the latter sense which most resonates with Alder's work, since she offers us a re-reading of Thoreau's religion via a re-reading of his text, Walden. Um, So perhaps, Alder, to start us off, can you share what the word religion means to you and how you use it in your work? Yeah, thanks. So in the academic study of religion, which is what my field is, um, it's one of the key controversies that brings us together as a field, this question about what we mean when we say the word religion. In fact, on the first day of class, sometimes in a religious studies class, one of the activities will be to list a long uh, group of definitions of religion and to think together about how the study of the things that we're interested in changes depending on what we are what we mean when we say religion. So for the most part in my work as a student of British and American literature, I'm especially interested in how reading literature with attention to religion and related terms. So words like sacred, spiritual, virtue, piety, ritual, reverence, how how reading with attention to these terms can open the study of literature onto perennial ethical questions about what it means to live a good life. Thank you. 
Um, and to set the stage a little bit more for your book, can you start by giving us a two to three minute kind of elevator pitch so that listeners can get a general idea of the scope of the book? Yeah, sure. So often, I mean, listeners of this podcast will certainly be familiar with Thoreau, um, but Henry David Thoreau was a 19th century American author. Um, And his reception has come down through the 20th century, often in two different interpretive streams. So on the one hand, um, we receive images of him through especially his most famous book, Walden, as a kind of contemplative in nature. And then on the other hand, we have um, the reception that came down through the essay that he wrote called Civil Disobedience, where he's uh, deeply invested in matters of justice. And that image, of course, has... um, Um, been utilized by movements for uh, liberation in the 20th century of a variety of kinds. My book is trying to show why it makes sense that those two guys were one guy. So I try to do this through a reading of Walden that's attentive to the categories of religion I was just talking about. And I find that when you read Walden with attention to those categories, you get a much different picture of what he's doing in that book. And um, especially I'm arguing in the book that against images of Thoreau as a social, a political and a religious, um, he represented the woods themselves as a place that was a kind of community. And he thought that joining that community was a, a, an important version of a politics for liberation or something like that. And um, importantly, he was invested in controversies at the time about what the significance of Christianity was to questions about matters of justice. So those are some of the things that I'm dealing with in the book. And I, I one, of the, one of the key terms that I haven't mentioned yet that's sort of in the cluster around religion is asceticism. Um, so like the practices of monks and nuns who renounce things. And I interpret his time in Walden as drawing on older traditions of religious asceticism that are invested in a kind of politics for just labor. So that's what the book is trying, some of what the book is trying to do. I find that as I get further away from having written the book, I'm less good at the elevator pitch. So <laughs> it's a funny thing. Um, no, I think you did pretty well. Can you dig a little bit more into that term aestheticism? Because I feel like the way that you use it is maybe not exactly the way that most people have an assumption about that word. Yeah. So one thing that's really important to say, first of all, especially in the study of literature, is that um there are two terms that sound quite similar. One is aestheticism, which is like beauty, representations of beauty and other things. And the other, which is the one I'm using, is asceticism, which is a kind of religious tradition often focused on renunciation, um, where people give stuff up. So, so Thoreau was totally fascinated by voluntary poverty. Um, and one of the key themes through Walden is why a person might um, try to renounce things that lots of us take to be really important and things that are in fact good. Um, So he said he tried to live on as little as possible with respect to clothing, food and shelter. And that's a, that's a pretty weird thing to do, but lots of people in the history of religious traditions have, have done something like that. And um, so I'm, I'm sort of in the book trying to figure out to what extent he was drawing on those religious traditions and, and, 
why he thought that weird idea was a good idea. Yeah, interesting, actually, that you like brought, brought up those two terms of like aestheticism and aestheticism as in aesthetics. Um, because although they are obviously very distinct terms, I I kind of feel like, I mean, not that I have ever lived an aesthetic life, but I've been on like a couple of meditation retreats, right? And actually, when you kind of do that, like taking away of social media media and extra stuff, your, your sensory experience, your aesthetic experience of the world actually goes up. So it's like they're not actually entirely unrelated. And in fact, I've been in so many fascinating conversations where we 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 don't clarify the distinction for a long time because in some contexts, for the for the reason I think you're describing, um, people can believe they're talking about the same thing. When you read Walden closely, you find that the first and the last chapters are really kind of um, discursive and adamant about their um, the argument they're trying to make. They're they're argumentative. The first and the last chapters, but the whole middle of the book is this kind of beautiful. I, I describe it as a, a seduction to the good. So Thoreau says in the first chapter, you should live on as little as you can, and in the last chapter, he says like march to the beat of a different drummer. And but in the middle, there's just passages about lying on his belly, staring in the pond through the ice and about listening to the birds and about um, rowing on the pond and and about um, how when you give up tea and coffee, actually water is really, really tasty. And all of these really enhanced aesthetic experiences as you're describing sort of come about through the disciplining of the body that happens because through through practices of aestheticism. I think that's a really um, a, a, an insight that I wish I um, th- that I want to read more about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I should at this point do a full disco- disclosure and say that I've managed to get through doing three literature degrees without reading Walden. Um, <laughs> so I. You know, I have obviously that like kind of cultural image of of who he is and what Walden is. I've been to Walden Pond several times. Like when I lived in Boston, I used to like cycle out there. And uh, yeah, I was also very surprised that it is not pond-like. It is very lake-like. Hey, you know, that happened to me when I got there. So I'm, I grew up in Florida on the Gulf Coast, right? The first time I went to Walden Pond after I wrote, the, did most of the research that this book is based on. And um, I, the first time I got there, the first thing that came into my mind was where I come from, we call this a lake. Yeah, exactly. It's it, it's, it's very big for anyone who hasn't been there. Yeah, I also like I love um, cold water swimming. So like I went there in the autumn and sort of getting to winter um, to swim a few times. I also went in the summer and then it was horrible because it was full of children and bugs and stuff, which is why I prefer the water in the w- in the winter. But I understand that's also a kind of uh, Thoreauian practice, right? <laughs> I think so. Um, So, yeah. Anyway, you did just mention that you grew up in Florida, which brings me to my next question. Um, So, yeah, growing up in Florida, you now live in Australia. How and why did you come to focus on a book that is uh, set in Massachusetts? Yeah, it was it felt funny while I was writing it because so much of the the image of Thoreau, there's a sort of New England um, cultural 
thing that I never really identified with. And, and I often found myself wondering what I was doing working on, on Yankee, Yankee texts. But um, I was doing a master's degree at the time that Deepwater Horizon exploded, and I grew up on the coast um, of Florida. Um, and so Deepwater Horizon was a, an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico, and it exploded, killing 11 workers in 2010, and um, led to a really uh, long uh, oil spill, one of the largest um, spill. I mean, it's crazy to call it a spill. It was like gushing out of the ground. Um, one yeah, of the for, largest for like 87 days right yes. in case anyone is not familiar with that this was extreme it was one of the largest in the history of the petroleum industry and um it was in a at a at very deep well which are super dangerous because they're impossible to get to and so they tried to cap it and they couldn't cap it that's why it went on for so long it's a really bad idea to put oil wells that deep in the ocean i mean it's a bad idea to put oil wells anywhere but it's not safe um so because of that, and because of my attachment to that place, I was quite distressed at that time. I was doing research during this master's degree about um, environmental thought and religion. And I had some money to do a little bit of research. And so I went down to my the community I had grown up in, and I did interviews with people there on the coast during the time that the well was not capped talking to them about what I was thinking about then uh, as nature grief. I mean, there's been a lot of really important work on environmental emotions in the time since. Um, and there's a lot of ways of describing this experience, but there, for the people I was talking to there, um, that time was, was full of this kind of anticipatory grief for the things that they expected to lose. Um, and some of them said that it felt like waiting for a friend to die. And I, I think then in my life, I, I really wanted other people to know about that, to know that there were people all over the world in various places facing environmental harm and, and having this experience of the things that, that are passing away. I think now, obviously, that's an experience, and even then, that's so widely shared. Um, so many of us are reckoning with the things that are passing away and learning how to do that together. And it raises all kinds of questions, like for people like me who wonder, how do I live a good life? Facing those kinds of losses just seems like a really important question. Um, but I didn't have any um, idea what I was going to do my research on in, when I went on to do the PhD. So I, I, I read a lot and I knew that I wanted to think about contestations over the category of nature, which are so often bound up with religious um, contestation. And the first time that I read Walden was sort of three years into my PhD in a class that was taught by Jeffrey Stout and Cornell West in religious studies at Princeton. And um, it was a, a class about the essay as a genre of ethical inquiry. We read Montaigne and Emerson, and we also read Walden. And it was in a in the paper at the end of that class that I encountered this book that really inspired a lot of the reading of Walden that I offer in Thoreau's Religion. Uh, it's a book called Black Walden by Elise Lemire, and it tells the history of slavery in Concord. So um, that was the first time that I learned that Walden Woods had been the home in the generation before Thoreau of 
the people, some of the people who had been enslaved and then freed around the time of the American Revolution in Concord, Massachusetts. And it was really thinking about Walden Woods as an inhabited place, as a, as a, as a place with a history of inhabitation, which is the way that Thoreau represents it in Walden, um, that I thought, like, this book, this book being something different than, than I thought it did. And it was really trying to work out how how it looks different when we read it with the history of that place clo- close to us. That made me think I could. I wanted to make it a book. Yeah, and that I mean, you know, from my not having read it position and just general cultural image, that aspect of Walden Woods being an inhabited place is definitely not one that kind of comes out into the like broader cultural image um, of the book. You describe Thoreau as being concerned with a very expansive form of justice, which um, I guess has to do with this, this notion of the woods as an inhabited place. Can you explain a little bit more about that in your thinking? The way that I try, the, the, the version of justice that I try to describe in the book, maybe I'll describe in contrast with a vision of justice that's um, popular in liberal political theory. So there's this uh, political theorist called John Rawls who wrote a book called A Theory of Justice. And the slogan for that theory of justice is justice as fairness. Um, And in that vision of justice, what justice means is that you and I need to follow certain principles that these political theorists try to work out in their books, and that if we follow, um, enable us to have a just society. So there's sort of principles worked out in advance that we we follow. And um, that's a really important tradition because it's described, it's been useful in politics that have enabled the enfranchisement of all different kinds of people, a sort of theory of, of rights that, that, that I come into the world with certain things that are due to me just in virtue of my being a human, human rights, say. I am trying to work out in the book a vision of justice that I think is closer to what Thoreau was working with, um, which sometimes surprises people because he's been really, to the extent that he's been adopted into liberal political theory, it's really through this tradition but he was sort of caught between that liberal political tradition, the one that is for emancipation in a variety of ways, and that thinks that there are, are certain principles that that can ensure justice for individuals. Thoreau was caught between that tradition and, and a, a tradition that teaches that something more common is at stake when it comes to justice, something more relational. So on this other vision of justice, it's not something that gets worked out in advance via principles that we then apply to a situation. It's something that we have to work out between us. So um, justice obtains when we work out between us what is due to each of us. And that relationship between us is set right. It's not, it's not a thing that inheres in my rights and your rights, but it's, a, a, it's what obtains when my relationship to you is going well. Um, and in that vision of justice, I can't know necessarily in advance what principles to apply because what I owe you depends on you in some way, on, on what you bring to the relationship that we have between us. 
it also means that there's all kinds of obligations. There's things that are due. Justice is, is working out what's due. And, and there's things that are due on this other way of thinking about it, not only to other humans, but also to any being with which I have a relationship that ought to be just. So maybe I'll make it more concrete. In the first chapter of my book, um, I'm trying to describe the community that Thoreau joined when he moved to the woods. And and one of the ways that I try to do this is by describing his sort of multi-species sociality. So I'm drawing on more contemporary literature in the multi-species studies world to try to show that there are these moments where he he takes his relationships with more than human uh, creatures seriously in just this kind of way that that the attention he shows them is due to them through something like this pretty explosive account of justice that I'm trying to offer. And it also means that, for instance, the the community of formerly enslaved people who lived in the woods before him are also due some kind of some kind of justice. And and I think it's something like he's trying to offer something like that in his recounting of their history in the woods before him to to acknowledge their their status in that place and their um, membership in the community that he's joining and and trying to to set right mm-hmm. um just to go back to this kind of idea of um justice uh towards non-humans or between humans and non-humans um and and you know you kind of emphasize that it's something that happens between us but i wonder like in in your view or in thoreau's view as you read it um do you see the kind of responsibility of justice laying with humans somehow or like you know when there is a like a relationship between a person and a tree or a person and an environment you know kind of it's clear how we as semi-rational thinking beings might construct this idea of justice but but how does that work from the other side or or does it in fact yeah I think that's such a good question and it's one of the so in Melbourne where I live right now there's a really um in 2017 the Birarang which is that what the river near where I live is called in Wurundjeri language um it's called the Yarra River in English it was granted voice in our parliament for the first time. And what it means for a river to speak in parliament is a really interesting, difficult question. I mean, in Melbourne, the voice of the Birarung is a purposefully bicultural council on which Wurundjeri elders serve along with other um, uh, environmental management people and people with expertise about sort of rights of nature and the law. A variety of different kinds of people serve on a 12-member panel to serve as the voice of the of the Birarung in our parliament, but how to, how to acknowledge, how to find out what the more than human beings around us need from us is a really important and like complicated, I think, epistemological question. So, I mean, I'll just talk about one example from Walden Woods, which is one I use in the book where Thoreau and a friend that he makes when he first moves to the woods, he's, he's a woodchopper, his name's Alex Therian, um, so Alexarian and Thoreau are sort of hanging out in the woods, um, eating their lunch, maybe, I can't remember. And um, a chickadee comes to join them, a little bird, and they talk to one another. 
about the chickadee. So, so the woodchopper was French Canadian and he spoke French. And so Thoreau asks him like what, what he calls the bird in his language. He tells him and, and they talk about the word for chickadee in English. And then the chickadee as represented by Thoreau in the journal uses its own words. It says chickadee, chickadee, dee, dee, dee. And um, when I first read this passage, I sort of assumed that the, that it was a sign of respect for Thoreau to write the words of the bird in the book, but that they were clearly indecipherable. Since then, I, I mean, I had a, an advisor who told me that I should think again before I assumed that the words of the chickadee were indecipherable. And so since then, I've learned that chickadees have really quite complex communication and um, biologists know a lot about what they're doing when they call. And one of the things that the chickadee call is for is it's called a mobbing call. And so chickadees call out when they're threatened by a predator to encourage um, other chickadees to come around and join in harassing the predator. And chickadees are actually, they're very cute. They're also very fierce because <laughs> they can uh, harass a predator away. They can protect one another when they call out. And um, so it's, I think that it's probably true that, that Thoreau and Alexirin knew that too, because they were quite attentive to the way that the creatures around them communicated and, and what they meant when they called. It's not to say that that offers any uh, solution to the question of what you and I owe the chickadee, but um, it's just to say that we do owe them quite a lot of attention in trying to work out what, what their due is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, that just also kind of thinking about um, birdsong, um, I read recently, I mean, I don't know if it relates to chickadees, um, but that certain birds, like, you know, they really have like cultures and dialects, i.e. their songs are like passed down in like regional groups and stuff. So it's not like this kind of inherent genetic thing, but it's rather something that they've they've built up through through culture and, and passing it on through the generations just as as we do with language. So Yeah, and there's of... new research. I mean I don't I'm no expert in any of this, but there's new research at least about chickadees, about how they're responding to things like traffic noise. So obviously if their languages are cultural, they have to adjust them in, in new circumstances. It's really quite amazing. Definitely. Um, so let's uh, zoom in a little bit closer. I wonder if you can read us a little bit from, from Walden and, and comment on it so we can actually hear some of Thoreau's words. I was reflecting on what might be good to read, and I realized the answer was obvious, that there's this chapter in the middle of Walden called Former Inhabitants and Winter Visitors. And this is where the people who lived in the woods before him are described, some of them who had been enslaved and freed. So he's talking about what he did in the woods in the winter. For human society, I was obliged to conjure up the former occupants of these woods. Within the memory of many of my townsmen, the road near which my house stands resounded with the laugh and gossip of inhabitants and the woods which border it were notched and dotted here and there with their little gardens and dwellings, though it was then much more shut in by the forest than now. So there he's he's talking about the fact that the place that we sometimes uh, call wilderness had been a 
a village, and there's another place in Walden where he calls it a small village. And he he walks down the road. He describes the road, and he walks down the road, and and he sort of takes you on a tour and describes thing people's houses who had been near the road. The first was uh, Cato Ingram, who had been enslaved um, by Duncan Ingram. And then the next, I'll read you the paragraph about Zilpa. Here, by the very corner of my field, still nearer to town, Zilpa, a colored woman, had her little house, where she spun linen for the townsfolk, making the Walden woods ring with her shrill singing, for she had a loud and a notable voice. At length, in the War of 1812, her dwelling was set on fire by English soldiers, prisoners on parole, when she was away, and her cat and dog and hens were all burned up together. She led a hard life and somewhat inhumane. One old frequenter of these woods remembers that as he passed her house one noon, he heard her muttering to herself over her gurgling pot, you're all bones, bones. I have seen bricks amid the oak copse there. So that's a, a paragraph about this woman, Zilpa, who had been enslaved and conquered. And then at the time uh, uh, that she achieved her freedom, moved to the woods to live independently. And as Elise Lemire describes in Black Walden, she lived independently in Walden Woods for 40 years, which was a feat matched by no other conquered woman of her time. I guess the point is just to say that the kind of independence that Thoreau is trying to achieve looks really different when we keep in mind the way that those people, like Zilpha, enacted independence at the time of their freedom. They went to the woods because they didn't want to live in service in a, in a society that was dominating. And by living in the woods independently, they, despite, uh, I mean, as he describes in this passage, quite intense harassment and, I mean, it's too small to call it harassment, right? Despite white supremacy and the harms that ensued because of it, to these people, they enacted their freedom. That is a is an example that I just find really moving. Mm, thank you for sharing. I feel as though, you know, I have been really educated in thinking about this stuff and like, you know, to go back to this kind of cultural image that I had of Thoreau from not having read the book and then you kind of talking about this um, this no notion of justice as being based on kind of what we owe each other. I can like really see now how your book is kind of doing that for Thoreau in in these examples that you're talking about. The way that he is actually kind of his going to the woods was not this like heroic one man endeavor, but actually something that he owed to the the communities and and non human world that he that he built on. So I think that's really wonderful that it's kind of, you know, your work is sort of enacting exactly this this type of justice that you're talking about. So we are coming to the end of our time. Thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. Um, to close, can you tell us what you're working on now? What's next for you? Sure. So one of the ideas that I got that was interested in when I started the Thoreau book um, I describe in the throw book as political asceticism. So that idea of giving stuff up. 
sometimes we think of monks and nuns as kind of apolitical, like they go to live in a monastery and that means they're withdrawing from the world of politics. And I tried to show in the Thoreau book that, that he was doing a kind of asceticism, but that it was really oriented by this vision of politics and specifically a vision of just labor. So to do the labor your own life requires was a way of resisting, he thought, I think, unjust labor. So I'm I'm wondering whether political asceticism as an idea is interesting in other contexts. And I'm working on a, um, a project now about the 20th century monk, Thomas Merton, who was a Catholic Trappist monk in um, Kentucky in the uh, middle of the 20th century. Interestingly, he kept obsessive journals like Thoreau. And I think I'm kind of drawn to these figures who just write and write and write in their journals. There's so much to read there and and there's so much uh, contradiction and exploration in that kind of genre. So I've been reading Thomas Merton's journals and thinking about his his reading, what he was reading through the late 50s and, and the 60s in a period that people, that scholars of Merton call as turning toward the world. He becomes really invested in the idea that the significance of monasticism has to do with broader political movements. And so I'm working on his his readings of figures like Hannah Arendt and William Melvin Kelly and Rachel Carson and trying to think through what, what political asceticism might mean in the context of the 1960s. Awesome. Well, we will look out for that. Um, so it is time to end on a roll. Brandon is not here and I do not have a 12-sided dice, so I'm just going to roll a virtual dice. Um, and we have got number seven, which is uh, what has you most excited or hopeful right now, either scholarly, scholarly, is that a word, or in the world in general? I mean, to be frank, I've found, as I think... Lots of people have the last two and a half years pretty exhausting. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the ways in which they've been hard for me or tiring is that a lot of the things that I found most exhilarating before were things that stopped being possible. In Melbourne, we had almost a, a full year of lockdowns. and But I'm really excited about a community organization in my city that's called Cultivating Community. And it manages community gardens in public housing around around the city. There's a um, one, there's a garden near where I work and they have a bread oven, a, a wood-fired bread oven. And a few years ago, we started baking there regularly. And since then, um, that program has really uh, taken off. People love the bread. It has a story and it also is a way for people from all kinds of traditions from all over the world to talk together about about food and what makes their lives good. And so um, whenever I go there and, and do stuff with them, that, that makes me really excited and hopeful. Nice. Yes. Love what good community project bringing people together. Um, okay. Well, Alda, thank you so much for for coming on the show. Um, how can listeners find out more about you and your work? Do you have any social media, website, anything like that? Yes, I do. I don't know my Twitter handle. Can I look it up? <laughs> uh, okay, I've got it. Awesome. <laughs> so Alda's Twitter handle is uh, at I am Alda. I-A-M-A-L-D-A. 
Thank you so much. Yeah, you can find me there. I'm really, really happy to correspond with people um, about any of these questions um, and and keen to connect more with people who are also working on them. Um, I'm sort of discovering a different disciplinary topography. My education was in the United States and it's a totally different disciplinary topography in Australia. And so I'm really just enjoying getting to meet all different kinds of people and hear about their work. So I really, really welcome people to reach out if they want to. Awesome. Absolutely. And likewise, if you would like to reach out to us at Ecocast, we are on Twitter at asley underscore ecocast. There's a link tree in our bio and there you can find all the ways to contact us, give us feedback on the episode, or if you have a proposal for an episode, either if you want to be on the show or you want to recommend someone to be on the show, please let us know. We would love to hear from you. Um, And if you've enjoyed the show, you can help us to reach a bigger audience by subscribing and leaving a review. So thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Thank you so much.